Hello and welcome to the podcast of TechEU. I am your host, Andre Degler, and today we are going to talk about German travel startups in general, and Omeo in particular, about the fresh funding for Voodoo, about the latest news from Wirecard, and also later on you will hear a beautiful interview with Elizabeth Varley, the founder and CEO of Tech Hub in London, which recently unfortunately went into administration. Now, I really wanted to get our editor Robin Wouters on this podcast today, but we could not get together online, so he has recorded what he wanted to say about some of the biggest deals of the week, so I'm gonna just run his pieces sort of asynchronously. And, I mean, I guess we will just start with that. So, Robin, take it away. Thank you, Andrew. Yes, let's talk about a couple of interesting deals from last week. Omeo, the Berlin-based multimodal travel booking platform provider formerly known as GoEuro, has scored $100 million in funding by means of a late-stage convertible note at an undisclosed valuation. Obviously, the news was interesting because the company managed to secure the financing in the middle of a global pandemic that has brought travel almost to a standstill in a large part of the world. It's worth noting that it isn't just existing investors making sure their investment can continue to operate and grow. It's also new investors who chipped in roughly a third of the round, although Omeo didn't disclose any of those two names so far. One of the prior backers of the company, Swedish investment firm Chinovic, had an interesting quote to share from its CEO, Georgi Ganev, who said, quote, We are very impressed how fast and effective Omeo adapted to such an unprecedented crisis for the global travel industry. The management team has delivered quickly and we can see the robustness of the business model, which is well diversified across markets and transport modes, unquote. While the coronavirus pandemic did wipe out 95% of Omeo's revenue within the first few weeks of lockdowns, according to the company, but it also said it has since partially recovered to more than 50% of pre-COVID bookings. But I think the funding news is also interesting because Omeo explicitly said it would start scouting for interesting M&A opportunities, making this, per definition, an opportunistic or arguably an offensive move. The company's CEO, Naren Sham, said in a couple of interviews that chasing M&A deals is actually not on the top of the priority list, but it's still worth noting as there are likely some discounted deals to be made in the travel sector in the coming months and even years. Omeo appears to be particularly interested in the South American and Southeast Asian markets to expand its footprint, to keep a very close eye on. Now, speaking of Omeo, by the way, the next story uh, that I wanted to share today is also about this startup and a bunch of others. And I would say it's really a bit too complicated and possibly boring for the podcast format. I'm sorry for that, but I still find it interesting. So I have decided to keep it in. So here's the story. A bunch of German travel startups have recently filed a complaint to the European Commission against Google, uh, which is allegedly abusing its dominant position on the market. Yeah, again. So the startups in question are Omeo and then a vacation rental platform Home2Go, uh, Flix Mobility, which is known, for example, by the Flixbus brand. Uh, then there is the experience booking engine called Get Your Guide and a hotel booking platform called Trivago. So long story short, the startups say that Google makes them share a lot of data if they want to advertise in search results, which is generally okay. That's something you would expect. However, Google also then builds competing vertical aggregators using this very data, and that's something that makes the startups really upset. 
For example, if you go on Google right now and you search for vacation rentals Amsterdam, what you're gonna see is this sort of special box uh, from Google uh, with a map on the right side and the list of properties on the left side. And that looks very similar to what you can see, for example, on Airbnb or any other platform uh, that does this kind of thing. And this data in this box, is it is sourced by Google from these partners, from uh, uh, from the startups that uh, are now complaining about it. And uh, you can also see uh, similar things uh, if you look for travel bookings, for example, or if you look uh, for uh, things to do in a city, you see these sort of special boxes uh, made by Google, uh, the data in which is uh, delivered by different, uh, different providers. Now, it's important to say, however, that when a user actually wants to book a room in a hotel or buy a ticket uh, through this sort of box, they would still be paying the company that has that offer on their website and not Google itself. So what I make from the complaints of uh, the German startups is that they are sort of afraid that Google basically ruins their brands. Uh, the way things go, all these companies may cease to exist as platforms and vertical search engines and basically end up as data providers for the mighty Google. And this threat uh, is very real, so no argument from me here, but obviously nobody wants to be a dump pipe after all. Uh, Google doesn't want to be a dump pipe to uh, these websites and these websites don't want to be uh, the dump pipes uh, for sort of uh, Google's and user interface. So on the other hand, however, as a customer, I mean, I actually find it totally fine and cool to be able to quickly compare offers uh, from different vertical aggregators without jumping between browser tabs. Like, there is no other way that I could uh, come uh, to uh, compare, like, hotels on booking.com and uh, uh, apartments on Airbnb in one place and see what sort of makes sense for a particular trip. So for a consumer, it sort of makes sense. I would not be surprised, however, if the commission sides with the startups eventually, uh, because we all know uh, that it has happened before. However, what we also know is that this investigation is very likely to take years. And that is if there will be an investigation at all, because the commission has not offered a reaction to the complaint yet, and this is something uh, we can expect to happen within a couple of months, I suppose. Now, if you're looking for more details on this one, I would uh, really recommend you uh, to go on TechCrunch and and uh, read a great, very comprehensive piece by Natasha Lomas uh, that details uh, the complaint. I will uh, leave a link in the show notes. There is, however, another interesting part to this story that I wanted to mention. So some of these startups uh, that complained to the commission, they're also upset with Google over something else. And this something else is the payments for the search ads uh, that these startup purchased. Because uh, these ads were purchased at the peak of the COVID-19 crisis, and most of the users who made bookings on their websites through those ads had eventually cancelled their bookings, their trips, their whatever, and got refunds, of course, and then that basically left the startups with pure expenses. And uh, what happened is that CNBC reports that back in April, uh, startups including Get Your Guide, Trivago, and Home2Go, they signed a joint letter to Google asking to, I quote, share the burden, the quote ends, by offering a delay in payments or uh, something like that. Google did not budge, and instead it asked at least three of the startups to pay their outstanding bills in full in June and July. And they had to pay because they really needed to start advertising again because the lockdown started to get weakened and people started to travel again. So that made startups really, really bitter. 
of course. The CEO of Home2Go, Patrick Andre, uh, told CNBC that, I quote, we are absolutely not satisfied with the support Google offered during this ongoing crisis, the quote ends. Another chief executive, Axel Heffer of Trivago, said that the company, I quote again, missed a collaborative spirit from Google, the quote ends. Now, this part kind of surprises me a bit, I have to say. So, on one hand, these companies file a formal complaint and scream about how they hate Google and how it squeezes them out of the market. On the other hand, they demand that Google offers them special payment terms and accuse it of the lack of collaborative spirit. So correct me if I'm wrong, but to me, I don't think that these uh, two things really look that well together. Podcast at tech.eu. Please do write me an email if you have something to say here, or find us on Twitter at uh, tech underscore eu, or myself at a degular, and let's talk about it. Now let's get back to Robin. Uh, Robin, what is your take on the funding round of Voodoo? And then uh, Chinese tech heavyweight Tencent, which is in fact uh, China's largest video game developer, has just added another portfolio member to its expanding global gaming empire to up its game in mobile casual plays and to diversify its catalog. Voodoo, a French company that has amassed 300 million monthly active users from its suite of more than 100 so-called hyper-casual mobile games launched since 2013, has recently announced that Tencent has become a minority shareholder in its business valued at $1.4 billion. The deal is important for Voodoo because it brings expansion opportunities for the company in the Asia-Pacific gaming region, which represents roughly 50% of the total gaming market. For Tencent, Voodoo's pretty big catalog of minigames is a particularly good match to its WeChat Messenger, which itself runs a platform for light and simple games that can potentially reach over a billion users straight from the app. The games themselves are mostly free, simple-to-play mobile games made rather cheaply and quickly, which rely heavily on advertising for revenue and appeal to the broadest category of players on both Android and Apple iOS devices. To date, Hong Kong-listed Tencent has mostly pursued stakes in companies that make blockbuster desktop and mobile games at a much more measured pace and with larger budgets. These include US-based developers Riot Games, Epic Games, Glue Mobile and Activision Blizzard, as well as South Korean firm CJ Games and Japanese company Aiming. Lest you forget, Tencent also famously spent $8.6 billion to take over Finnish mobile game developer Supercell back in 2016. Now, I have to say, I don't often play games on mobile, and I wasn't quite sure what all those hyper-casual games that Voodoo makes are, so I actually went on and downloaded the most popular one. So, let me just uh, quickly walk you through. It's called Helix Jump, and it has a total of over 500 million downloads, half a billion downloads of one hyper-casual game. Uh, so, let me fire it up now on my phone, and yes, okay, it is as casual as it gets. So, there, uh, in the game there is no music, uh, you don't hear any music right now, there are just very generic sort of uh, effects sounds, and that's uh, what you're hearing now. Actually, it's the ball bouncing off something like a terrace that goes around a big pole in the center of the screen. So. Let me just uh, try to get a step back and describe uh, what I'm seeing. So it looks like an incredibly simplified version of those, uh, you know, old maze cubes uh, where you have a metal ball inside a glass cube and you have to guide it through a maze uh, to the middle of it uh, by rotating the cube itself. So this is uh, more or less what that is. So what you see on the screen is this big pole uh, that has those terraces around it on different levels and then each terrace uh, has a gap in one place. And there is also this bouncing ball that you are still hearing that can go down through 
through those gaps. And so what you need to do is to rotate the pole so that the ball goes down as many levels at once as possible. So really, it takes a while to describe, but you can understand the idea of the game pretty much the second you see it for the first time. So it turns out, if you make enough of these simple and sticky games, like Helix Jump, uh, you can, in fact, become a unicorn. Uh, okay, I've just died again, and I guess I will just uh, play more uh, later. Although I have to say that the ads here are pretty annoying, and, but this is how all these uh, voodoo games are monetized, which uh, kind of makes it easier for Tencent, because as far as I remember, Remember, monetizing through in-app purchases actually requires a special license uh, back in China. So for Tencent, again, uh, Voodoo seems to be a really, really good fit. Anyway, let us move on to the last piece of news that I wanted to share today, and uh, it is, as I said, an update regarding Wirecard. And Wirecard, in case you've missed it, is the German fintech company that went under back in June uh, due to what could be called, uh, let's say, accounting irregularities. And uh, namely, the company has allegedly made up some 2 billion US dollars in its trust accounts, which an independent audit failed to locate. So the fintech startup went from being a decacorn valued at 13 billion US dollars to filing for bankruptcy. So the most recent news concerns the UK-based part of Wirecard, which is called Wirecard Card Solutions, or WCS. Before shit hit the fan, uh, this was an important part of the UK's fintech scene. It processed payments for a bunch of well-known neobanks, including uh, the ones that Curve, uh, Revolut, Soldo, and Pocket. I don't know the first two, but apparently the other two are also pretty big. The reporters at Sifted uncovered on Thursday that WCS could be purchased by its rival, called Rails Bank, based in the UK. The company does pretty much the same thing as WCS, so this acquisition would generally make sense. However, later on Friday, uh, Wirecard stated that it is indeed having talks with rail banks, I, but, I quote, no final transaction documents have yet been agreed. We are also continuing to work on other contingency planning for the business, Wirecard said. In the meantime, the FT reports that the Brazilian part of Wirecard has already been sold to another competitor, a local Paxaguro Digital. Uh, the administrators also said that the North American division is quite close to be sold as well. As for the core company, uh, the Wirecard AG one, uh, the administrator said that he had received indicative offers from, I quote, several notable interested parties, the quote ends. So I really, really hope that someone is already writing a book about what actually went down at Wirecard and how it ended up this way. I would most certainly buy it and read it, and it would be our European answer to bad blood and super pumps and other stuff like this. So if you are writing this book, do let me know. I would love to have it uh, the moment it is printed. So it is time for our interview of the day, and as I said, uh, this is going to be Robin Wouters again interviewing Elizabeth Varley, uh, the founder and CEO of Tech Hub in London. So let us listen together to this one. Hey, this is Robin Wouters. I'm the founder and CEO of Tech.eu, and I'm joined here in conversation remotely, of course, by Elizabeth Varley. She is the founder and CEO of Tech Hub in London, a very important uh, hub for the startup community over there, uh, which very unfortunately went into administration uh, less than a month ago when we're recording this. Uh, so we're going to talk about that. But maybe first and foremost, Elizabeth, tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Robin. Yeah, I, th I think you've you've summed that up. Um, I've been working on Tech Hub for the last nearly 11 and a half years for me. We opened our doors a decade ago and 
it's really been a place where we brought the startup community together in London and catalyzed the boom that we've seen. Uh, that also makes it very difficult to sort of define what TechHub is. It's not a co-working space, not an incubator. It's a little bit of everything, uh, but how would you describe it? Yeah, we've always called TechHub a community because it really is about the people and the things that you do at TechHub. We're a center for early stage and growth technology businesses to access all of the things that they need to be more successful. So that's everyone from right at the earliest stage you've you've just started through to serial entrepreneurs who are who are on their sort of third or fourth business. And what we offer is a support for the different things that you need at different stages of your company. So we run uh ran, I guess now a um, a really rich program uh, of over 200 pieces of programming a year. Uh, we offered workspace, uh, but really it was about accessing the other people that you can learn from, uh, experts. Uh, we in- had investor introductions every single week, and it was just a place that you could come to do any of the things that you needed to do if you're a technology business. Yeah, and definitely a fixture in the UK tech scene and even beyond that, but we'll talk about it in a minute. Uh, but also a decade ago, I think I was uh, I was working at TechCrunch at the time. Uh, I remember going to Old Street in the very beginning when they were still calling it sort of vaguely Silicon Roundabout before it was a real term. There was sort of um, some movement in, in that area of London um, to establish the new you know, center of, of, of tech uh, over there. But of course, you know the history a lot better. So, so can you tell us a little bit uh, of background, like how was TechCrop created? Why was it created? By whom, etc. Sure. So back in sort of 2008, 2009, there was something going on uh, around the Old Street Roundabout, Silicon Roundabout, as you as you say. Uh, it was a term first coined by Matt Biddulph, who was at Doppler. Uh, founder of Doppler at the time. And it was a bit of a joke, really. And then the Evening Standard, I think, picked up the name and ran with it in it. And it just became uh, a name for the area. And I often refer to the actual roundabout that's there as the world's ugliest but most innovative roundabout (laughs) because it's it's you know i think people think of it as oh you know there's this there's there's this place and you get there and it's just sort of advertising and traffic um though that's hopefully going to be changing soon uh but it was really that there were things starting to happen there. Mike Butcher, uh, editor of TechCrunch, and I had been friends for years and we'd been talking about how there wasn't somewhere that was the one place you could come, the town hall for what was going on in London. Last FM uh, was close by TweetDeck um, before they got bought uh, was there, and there, so there were there were companies there in their own offices. Uh, doing their own things. Everybody knew each other. Um, Christian was running minibar there. Uh, and so it really felt like a place where things were starting to bubble. Um, and most importantly, it was still relatively inexpensive compared to other parts of London, well-connected physically by transport. And it had loads of great place, great places to eat and drink and to go out. And it really felt like the right place for something like TechHub and that TechHub was really needed. Affordable, easy, flexible workspace uh, was needed, but also just somewhere where you could find out what was going on. What yeah. is everybody else doing? How do you connect with other people? And so that's why we uh, we put that together uh, in 2009. 
Right. Very funny to me that you mentioned that Matt actually coined the term because the first time I ever took the train to Old Street was to go visit Matt. And uh, I think he was having the Doppler office at, at the Moo.com uh, offices back then. It was just like a small, small corner of the office that he had there. Uh, and I was hot desking even before it was called co-working. I was co-working out of the, the Moo offices. Uh, well, yeah. that, that's exactly what people were doing at the time, sharing, yeah. uh, sort of grabbing a desk in, in a friend's office. But, of course, you'd be displaced once the, once the other company grew. You'd sort of need to, to go and find your own. And so that was one of the issues that we wanted to resolve with TechHub was that you could just have a, you know, come in and just dump your stuff and work for the day if that's all you needed uh, or have meetings, you know, arrange to meet somebody there, have an office as you grew. We, we, we started doing private offices. We were the first in the area because we grow as our companies grow. And so we had, um, I think it was second market, uh, had just come over from the U S and they said, well, look, we're going to be FCA regulated. So we need a locking office. What can you do? So we turned one of the meeting rooms into a locking office for them. And they were like, that great. That's great. And then everybody else said, oh, can we have that too? And that's when we knew we, we definitely needed more space. Great. And I remember also Google Campus joined the sort of the physical space that you had uh, around Old Street uh, by opening the campus there. So was that a good thing or a bad thing? Was that sort of a catalyst for, for more activity to come or was it competition? It was definitely a catalyst for more activity. We were involved in setting that up. Um, I remember going to look at buildings uh, with the team there to work out uh, what what they needed, what they could create, and we uh, we opened Tech Hub uh, on two floors of that space. And really, it was Google saying we really believe in what's going on in this area and we want to do more. So Google had been a partner of TechHub since our launch. Uh, we had the DevRel team uh, coming in and hanging out and doing all of their events there because Google at the time was was down in Victoria and it was very difficult for them to do open access type events in, in what was a secure building. And so they ran a lot of their developer relations events um, out of TechHub, which was great. It just brought more resource to people who needed access to really smart Googlers who could help them with the technologies that they were using. And um, so tell us about TechHub throughout those 10 years. Was it a, a period of constant linear growth or was there, you know, was it with ups and downs or how, how did the business actually fare? Yeah, we, we grew um, pretty quickly. Uh, we, we opened in uh, Riga uh, quite quickly. It was, I remember doing the announcement uh, about that. And I think everybody thought we were going to say San Francisco was going to be the, <laughs> the next place after London. And people were like, Riga, why, why Riga? But it's because um, Andres Berzic, who uh, is one of the, the co-founders there, was a member at Tech Hub London. And he cornered me one day and said, look, what you're doing here, I don't think you know how valuable this could be to Latvia. Will you come over and have a look at what we're doing over here and look at the, the ecosystem here and help us to create this, which I did. And it's fantastic. Uh, Riga has a very special place in my heart because what Andres and Ernest and, and the team there created was that real catalyst. They took what we were doing in London and made it work for Riga. And suddenly there was a place where everything that was going on in the tech industry in Riga was happening, literally everything, because it was a much smaller 
community. Uh, and so we we started with with that kind of model, working with local co-founders to create something that could really catalyze those smaller communities. And then in London, we just continued to grow as uh, as we had more and more companies join they would begin to grow and so we we just had to keep growing with them so we we moved around at one point we had three tech hubs uh, in different buildings in london and and the team was all just shuttling between them and we opened in bucharest with uh, daniel and bogdan there uh, we opened in wales with matt and paul really following that sort of model where it creates a, a huge catalyst for that local ecosystem. Yeah. Can I just ask, uh, what was actually the model when you internationalized something like Tech Hub? Was it sort of a franchise where they sort of took yeah. the name or was it really a subsidiary? No, it, much more the franchise type model, not in the McDonald's way here is exactly <laughs> how you do everything because I, I really recognize that what will work for London won't necessarily work for uh, a different city. And it's really important to trust the people that you're founding this with to make sure that it's something that's workable for their local community. And so that was really uh, how we did that. We, th we then opened in Warsaw and Madrid with Google as part of their campus openings there. So those were subsidiaries. That was, that was our team hiring uh, local teams. They closed when uh, Google took a, a different approach with those campuses. Uh, and we also were open in Bangalore uh, and Google was uh, a big supporter of that as well uh, and closed then thereafter yeah. four years, I think. Great. So you're growing internationally, you're building a brand, you have this community that's, you know, you become a fixture in the UK uh, taxi, especially in London. But then, of course, it's an ever-changing city. So I'm guessing the prices rise, the, the companies mature, they move out, um, it gets spread a little bit more uh, all across London and no longer necessarily in one place. Uh, so how did that affect uh, affect the business? We never had an issue. Um, we traditionally always had a waiting list to to come and join uh, in terms of obviously physical space was our only limiting factor. Uh, people who were part of the uh, the community and accessing our programs, uh, we, we've always run an open access uh, program uh, alongside our members program. So a lot of things people can come to for free. You don't have to be a member of Tech Hub because we think that's a really important way to build an industry, um, high quality events, not just, you know, random free events. They have to be really genuinely useful. I really love the fact that the tech industry has spread out all over the place because that means that one local area can no longer contain the might of the, the London tech ecosystem. That's fantastic. It didn't make um, a change for us because people still wanted to be close to the greatest concentration of that kind of activity. And we really made it possible for a lot of companies to be able to be in Shoreditch uh, far longer than they would have been able to afford to be uh, if they hadn't been at TechHub. Uh, part of our, our model was that our really, really great corporate partners meant that they subsidized uh, the cost of what we were offering to our members. So we were able to keep it really affordable and keep people together in that biggest community of technology people in yeah. London. 
Makes sense. Um, of course, this this maturation didn't occur only in uh, in London or the UK. So when you see places like Paris and Berlin and Stockholm blooming, didn't didn't it make sense for Tech Hub to sort of open up there? Did you have those kind of conversations or plans? We did. Uh, we looked at Berlin years ago, really, really early, and the biggest challenge around that was actually finding suitable buildings at the time, because. There was a real divide between corporate buildings, commercial offices, and what most people were doing, uh, most founders were doing, which was using flats, using apartments uh, for their offices because it was so inexpensive. And so at the time, it didn't really make sense for us to do that. And then the factory opened there and they were doing such a great job of bringing that community together. It, it didn't make sense for us to, to look at that city at the time. Yeah. And what about uh, the pressure of uh, the likes of, you know, the WeWork um, spaces, all of these these big companies rolling out co-working spaces all over the world uh, very aggressively? Did that um, mean anything to your business? It was a really interesting thing. Uh, we never saw WeWork as a competitor, but I think they'd like to think they're a competitor of ours. We saw a lot of companies talking about community. Uh, you know, having having this approach that that sounded great, that sounded like you're bringing people together, uh, but really turned out to be free beer and hosting a few events for other people. And that's what some people want from workspace, from office space, and that's absolutely fine. But it's it tends not to be what people in the tech industry are looking for because they're really looking for that genuine community where they can learn things from other people. It's, it's really interesting that the tech industry is different to other industries in that we group companies by stage. You don't sort of see that quite in the same way in other industries. And there is this real atmosphere of sharing, sharing your knowledge, uh, collaborating on things, learning from other people who are just that bit further along from you. And I think that's that's the thing that other sort of, you know, serviced office providers, they, they like that idea, they talk about that, but it's really difficult to get that right. You have to invest a lot of time and energy, invest in the right people. Uh, our team at TechHub is phenomenal. I, I have been so incredibly fortunate to work with the kind of people uh, that I have on the team because they all really believe in what we're doing and really care about our members, really care about these founders and these teams who are creating something out of nothing, often with, with little support or when they haven't gotten investment yet, they're just flying by the seat of their pants. And that is the kind of atmosphere that you can't just sort of stick a sign above a door and, yeah. and it's there. Well, be careful not to sell yourself short uh, because, of course, you've built something that, you know, these smart people in your team wanted to work for and wanted to build with you. So so kudos to you as well. Um, so fast forward to earlier this year when, of course, the storm uh, that sort of hit the world uh, very, very suddenly, very quickly and very globally, uh, for that matter. Uh, of course, the, the coronavirus uh, pandemic. So how did that affect your business in the short term? Well, when it first, before lockdown, uh, et cetera, in very early March, we had our first uh, COVID scare, as it turned out. We had a, a first um, ca suspected case. And we had put in place um, a plan for what would happen uh, were, that, were that to happen. And 
we were told by a member that they'd been in contact with someone with a confirmed case of COVID. They had been in uh, for a couple of days and they were letting us know. And so we wrote comms, got them out, moved everybody out of the building um, and closed in 90 minutes on a Friday afternoon. And that was just, uh, I was so incredibly proud of my team for being able to effect that kind of fast action. And and then we we stayed, you know, online all weekend answering questions. I was up till midnight every night just responding to, to members' questions because I think that it what I knew that what was really important was communication. You absolutely had to tell everybody what was going on. We did our own contact tracing for anybody who'd been in the building who'd come into contact with that member. We kept their details completely private because medical information is private. And even though they said, it's fine if you want to tell people who I am, I really thought that 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 wasn't appropriate. And so we, we, we did our own uh, contact tracing. We shut everything down. We kept full communication almost every day uh, going out to tell people what was going on. We then did a full antiviral clean because it was taking too long to get the uh, test results back um, so that we could reopen and then asked everybody on their way in, you know, whether they've had any symptoms, whether they'd travelled anywhere, et cetera, et cetera. And so naively I thought, well, this is clearly how the government is going to react. The UK government is going to react exactly this way. Uh, we're just doing this quite early. We had some press interest at the time because I think we were sort of the, the first company in the tech industry aside from um, Facebook who did a shutdown on the same day. Um, we were the first one in, in the local area who who were doing this. I don't know that we were the first who who had such an issue, but perhaps we were the first that was was so transparent about it. But that really made me think that that was how this was going to be handled uh, by the government and that there would be a short, sharp shutdown that would clearly be needed in order to make sure that this, this wasn't going to spread. Because clearly, the way to protect people's health and to protect the economy was to act decisively and quickly. Mm. Well, as we now and know, I can, I can see you chuckling. <laughs> as we now know, as we've this. learned, um, many many of the governments around the world have not uh, done exactly what you would have uh, thought or hoped would happen. Exactly, <laughs> and so that that was that was my very long winded response to what you were saying, uh, which was at first there wasn't a, a massive impact because we were addressing that, you know, every, we, we got a lot of praise from our members about our transparency and our communications. And so we thought, right, okay, we can handle this. There will be an announcement that says, right, everything has to shut down for a month and then we'll reopen and, and we'll manage that. But as you said, that didn't happen. Um, and so once lockdown started, I think even before lockdown started, some people weren't coming into the office. And then once lockdown started, we stayed open throughout uh, with our team monitoring remotely, being able to access the doors remotely, making sure that all the posts came in so that members wouldn't uh, miss out on important uh, letters, that sort of thing. Um, but nobody came in uh, for, for the first while. And then we had a few um, stalwarts who were like, right, I'm coming in, I can walk into the office, I can, you know, I can come in and do this, it's really quiet, this is safe for me. But very rapidly we had members saying, we have to give notice in terms of those who were had the bigger offices who were based with us permanently, which were up to 
about um, companies of sort of 50 person sort of size saying we've lost a major client uh, so we need to really cut our costs or none of us are going to to come in uh, for six months so so we really need to um, to give notice and so our revenues dropped by over 75 percent over that sort of four months and without um, support from our landlords which who, with whom we'd been negotiating for for quite a period we just weren't able to sustain that we no. needed a, a period of, of being able to ramp back up after the lockdown eased uh, in order to to get back into a to a healthy position yeah, and obviously you didn't get that chance, uh, which brings us to the situation we're in today. But um, just because you mentioned this huge revenue drop over four months, at what point, as the CEO, do you sort of see the signs and say, like, listen, there's this is a huge problem. We we might not make it. I think it's as entrepreneur, as a founder, you are really used to solving problems and looking at ways that you can resolve things, uh, workarounds, workthroughs, throughs, all of that sort of thing. Everybody listening to this will, will be nodding because they know exactly what that's like, uh, yourself included. Um, <laughs> and you, you work out the routes through. You look at, okay, what are the things that we can do? There are various levers we can pull. Which ones can we do? We go after them all at the same time and see, see what pans out. And so I think for a while, it was for us, as it was for many, um, so unknown. Everything was in limbo for a really long time because no one knew when the lockdown was going to end. Uh, nobody knew what would happen after that. And so I think for at least a few months, there was this sense of, right, well, we just don't we can make some plans, but we don't really know if they're going to be able to be put into practice. But you start having the conversations, you do um, damage control as much as you can. And as things start to to change or become a little bit more certain in an extremely uncertain situation, you just try to make the things happen that you think will make a difference. And sometimes, which is very, very difficult as a founder, sometimes those things are out of your hands. Mm. Uh, you know, we're, we're people who feel very much that we can control our own destiny and make things and make things happen. And when it really comes down to the decisions of other people, it's really hard. But you have to face the fact that you need to be a responsible business owner. You need to be a good corporate citizen. And make sure that you're doing the right thing, both legally and morally, and that's to be public about what's going on at a yeah. certain point. Devil's advocate question. As a responsible business owner, do you think you could have, because nobody can really prepare for this, but do you think there was a way to sort of safeguard the business in a, in a, in a better, maybe proper way uh, that you might have made it, or at least made it a few months longer, um, given that we're still in, living in times of uncertainty? I think that you can always plan for difficult situations and you can still, even if you do that, be blindsided by something that you haven't planned for. And as a business person, if you are so focused on planning by fear, the fear of every, you know, every possible negative eventuality, you'll never grow because you'd have to tie up so much money and thought and resource in 
reserve in planning for what could what could one day happen, you just wouldn't be able to invest it into the growth of your company. So as ever, you know, business is always a planned gamble. You do your best, you do the right thing. And I think it's very important to be doing the right thing. But at the same time, you can get dealt a card that you just couldn't see coming. And though you try really hard to make your way out of that situation, sometimes you just can't. And I think, you know, we talk about the acceptance of failure as as entrepreneurs, as founders, and you have to accept that at a certain point, you just have to let go. The decision is made by others. You've done your best and you have to do the right thing. And sometimes the right thing is letting go. All of this uh, sounds to me more than fair enough. But now TechHub will live on, um, not just as a great memory for many uh, in the UK, but also, I, I guess, the international sort of franchises, if you want to call them that, are, are continuing to exist. They're not being affected by this, are they? Yes, they're um, they're oh, they're so fantastic. I'm I'm so delighted that they are still going at the moment, um, and. I think it's really important that that everybody uh, supports supports their local communities uh, because if if they're not around, then they're not around. It's very hard to replace them, especially when they've been around for such a long time. So, uh, to to those listening, go and support support your local tech hub. <laughs> I can only uh, I can only applaud that. Um, so, what's next for you, Elizabeth? Well. Um, I'm not quite sure yet. Uh, at the moment, I'd like to take a couple of weeks off because it's been a, a very, very intense period. Uh, I don't think I'm going anywhere uh, in terms of my interest and, and devotion to to this community and to this industry. So really, I, I think I'm um, open to to new things, looking, looking around, seeing uh, what people are doing, what people are up to, and working out what the next thing is. Great. Well, I'll be watching. Uh, final question. Since you've announced sort of that you went into administration, uh, you've received an outpouring of, of support and then lots of personal stories and anecdotes. What's the most surprising thing you've learned about TechHub in the last three weeks? Oh, that's a really interesting one. I think just recognizing the longevity of some of those connections that people have made. Uh, I mean, I I really talk about the, the value of that community uh, and I see people experiencing it all of the time but some of the tweets that that we received and and you're right there was a massive outpouring it was completely overwhelming which made me feel really proud of everything that everyone who's been involved in tech hub um has done you know uh, my my colleague andrew uh, coo and i have worked really really hard on this and and he has been fantastic and and I couldn't have gotten through uh, these last years without him and the rest of our team. But seeing tweets from people from 10 years ago who still have a photo of uh, of the first um, Christmas lunch that we had with all of the members who were still around on like December the 24th um, going out for lunch and wearing Christmas hats and that sort of thing. And I, you know, I have really fond memories of things like that, but it's really amazing to see that others have valued those connections for so long. The number of people who said, oh, I met my co-founder uh, at TechHub because we were interning together. NASA and Alex, they they run a business together. Alex was our first intern. NASA was a second or third intern. And 
they said, you know, we wouldn't have met. This wouldn't have happened uh, if we hadn't been there. And so I think that's just been really, really wonderful to see and surprising, I guess, that that people see so much value in in those old connections. It's wonderful. Yeah. It's really great to hear. And if anyone's listening that has more stories about TechHub and how they were involved either 10 years ago or very recently, uh, make sure to share it with Austin and Elizabeth because I think she'll be uh, very happy to receive them as well. Uh, from my side, massive congratulations for what you've done over a decade. It was almost exactly to the day, a decade. Um, sad to see it go, but happy to have watched it grow. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, anyone can uh, tweet at me, at Evali. Really happy to hear your stories, see your photos. There you go, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for taking the time and uh, best of luck with whatever comes next. Thanks, Robin. Cheers. And this is it for our today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. I do hope that you enjoyed it. And please help us spread the word. Tell a friend or colleague about this show. Follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. Go on Apple Podcasts and write us a review. Give us some stars. This would mean a great deal for us. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse, that is sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at podcast at techeu. I'm going to talk to you next Monday. Enjoy your week and take care. Bye-bye.